Um, we're continuing on in the Gospel of John. If you have a Bible with you, uh, or you can use one of the church Bibles, uh, John chapter 8. We're going to be looking at that this morning. Uh, John chapter 8, verse 12. As we continue with these I am statements uh, in the Gospel of John. It's page 1073 in the church Bibles, uh, if you're using the church Bibles. 1073. John chapter 8, uh, and starting at verse 12. Let, let's hear God speak to us through his holy and inerrant word. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are, appearing to us as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you have no idea where I came from or where I am going. And you judge by human standards, I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true, because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Then they asked him, where is your father? You do not know me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. This is God's word. Amen. We are probably all nearly familiar with the idea of Jesus saying, I am the light of the world, to being nearly over-familiarity with it. So many cultures and societies and religions will make claims about light. Um, if you were to chat to somebody who was Muslim, one of the most famous passages in the Quran is called the passage of light. That's uh, one of the, the main teachings of the Quran. If you were chatting to somebody who was a Buddhist, they would talk about inner light, or to use their terminology, the illuminated soul, the idea of having a light within you. If you were to chat even to somebody who was atheistic, who maybe would claim to have no religion whatsoever, they would probably claim things that come out of a philosophy from the 17th century Protestantism that was called the Enlightenment, the idea that they have the light of pure reason and that everyone else doesn't quite have that light. We talk about light so much, it's got such significance and so much meaning to it that we can sometimes get the Christian view of it lost in amongst all of that. So this morning, I just want to look at what this passage shows us and what Jesus is claiming. And we're going to see Jesus really makes four claims about light in this passage, or we're going to look at it in four different ways. We're going to see how this light is the light of truth, the light of life, a light that shows and a light that leads. So the first thing we see that Jesus is talking about is the idea that light is connected to truth. Um, if you were to read through John's gospel in one sitting, you, and even his letters, the epistles towards the end of the New Testament, you would pick up that John loves a good contrast. You know, the gospel of John starts out contrasting light and darkness. Throughout the gospel, as Jesus encounters the Pharisees, he contrasts belief with rejection. And he then contrasts truth 
with lies and with unfaithfulness. Light and darkness, truth and lies. We're familiar with this idea that whenever we talk about light, we are talking about being in the light. We're talking about something being true. If something's in the dark, it means that you don't know or that you're, you're telling a lie. Light and truth are bound to one another. And that's really difficult in our society because we live in a society that does not like truth with a capital T, as one writer, Francis Schaeffer, used to call it. Big T truth that is true whether you believe in it or not. We live in a culture that is, you'll sometimes have heard the phrase post-truth. We live in a post-truth culture, sometimes what the way journalists will talk about it. And what that means is that a few generations ago or a few years ago, many of you will probably remember a time whenever you read a story in a newspaper or something on the TV and you just took it as fact, you didn't think about it. Whilst now I would imagine when you read a newspaper article or you watch something on TV or you see something on social media, your thought is, I wonder what their perspective is. I wonder what angle they're coming at it from. I wonder what spin they're using. Because we live in a culture that no longer looks at truth as something that is true, whether you believe it or not, that is always the way things are, that perfectly conforms to reality. Instead, we live in a culture that thinks truth is just your own opinion. This was maybe, some of you maybe will know the infamous interview with uh, uh, Rudy Giuliani. Um, maybe you're not sad like me and you, you have better things to do with your day than take an interest in the, the intricacies of American politics. Rudy Giuliani was mayor of New York and went on to be the lawyer for the Trump presidency. And he was being questioned uh, on a TV interview about a, a, a court case that was going on. And at one point he says in the interview that somebody had given testimony that they'd been lying and he said, that is just their truth. Truth isn't truth. That's really the culture we live in. Truth isn't truth. It's just your opinion. This is what, why whenever maybe you share your faith with your friends or family, they'll say, well, you know, if that works for you, great. What's true for you is true for you. And what's true for me is true for me. You do you and I do, I'll do me and neither the twain shall meet. It's all about opinion. It's all about perspective. Nobody has the real truth. That's the culture we live in, a world that has no truth. And in the midst of that, into that world, Jesus makes a claim on truth. As we look at this teaching this morning, I want you to see it not just as opinion. Now, you may even think that if I'm a minister, of course, this is, I, I'm going to have my own slant and my own opinion on it. But I want you to see past that and to look at what Jesus himself is claiming and what he is saying. Because Jesus is making a claim on truth this morning, not a claim on opinion. A truth that we must accept or reject, but we cannot dismiss as mere opinion. We cannot dismiss it as something that is, in the words of the Big Lebowski, if you ever watched that film, that's just like your opinion, man. I'm not going to do the American accent. I can't do it that well. What we see this morning is Jesus is claiming something that is either true or it is not true. And it is impossible for us to remain on the fence about it. He is claiming big capital T truth, light, knowing, no longer being in darkness. And what is that claim? That's the second thing we see. It's, he is claiming to be the light of life. If you look down with me in verse 20, 
there's a verse that we probably, we probably could have skipped over if we were reading this by ourselves. John throws this little detail in on the end in verse 20. He says, he spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. No one seized him. We might think, why say that? Why say that? It, it, like, we know Jesus isn't seized because we don't read of him being arrested. We don't read of Jesus being arrested in chapter 18 in John's gospel. So why does John feel the need to say that no one seized him? And the reason is what Jesus said and what Jesus claimed was so controversial, was so upsetting, that in normal circumstances, he would have been arrested on the spot for it. And we can see that by the Pharisees' reaction, can't we? The Pharisees, as soon as he says it, they automatically want to say, your testimony isn't true. They automatically want to try and prove him wrong. And yet, why is it? We might think somebody saying that they're the light of the world isn't that strange. You know, you see a lot, you see people shouting and declaring a lot stranger things if you walk through the center of Belfast on a Saturday morning. So why is it that what Jesus is saying is so affronting? Well, it helps because John tells us where this took place. Where this took place was in the temple in Jerusalem, the temple where God was said to dwell. And the temple courts were kind of structured in a way where you had an outer one for the Gentiles, where people like you or me could go. Then you had an inner one where the Jewish woman could go, one within that where the Jewish men could go, and then finally one within that where the Jewish priests could go. And then within that was a tiny little court where God was said to dwell. And this took place in the, the court for the women, that, that the place where all the Jewish people could have gathered, in around where they would have had the ancient Near East equivalent of a collection plate, uh, where they would have dropped coins in to help fund the temple. And scattered around that court, there would have been multiple candelabras or menorahs. If you don't know what that are, picture in your mind, you, you would see the candles that will sometimes appear on Jewish symbols that have the eight stands that come out almost like tree branches and have all the eight candles in it. And the temple would have had several of these huge candelabras or menorahs scattered around this court. And these were to represent God's presence with God's people. It goes all the way back to Exodus where God's led his people through the wilderness with a pillar of fire and smoke that they followed on their way, leaving Egypt on their way to the promised land. And these candelabras, these menorahs were to represent God's presence with the people. However, like any good frugal person, they didn't light all of them at once because that would have been uh, seen as just wasting a lot of oil. So there would have been some of them, that one or two of them that just burned continually while the rest weren't lit. And as these menorahs burned, these lights burned, which were meant to represent God's presence, everybody kind of knew that this is simply a token of the real thing. This is simply a sign of what used to happen a generation ago but we have not seen for 400 years. It's been 400 years since God has revealed himself or spoken. It has been 400 years since there's been any great miracle. It's been 400 years of silence. And the people would have begun to think, does the candle really represent God's presence because he's not speaking anymore? And Jesus comes into the temple, stands in front of one of these menorahs in the court where these menorahs would have been, surrounded by these little lights and says, I am the light of the world. Ignore the candles you see around you because God is before you. That is the ginormity of the claim that Jesus makes in this passage. 
He is claiming not to be some nice, frilly, light figure, but he is claiming to be God, and no smaller claim than that will suffice. He is claiming to be greater than all of the lights in the temple that would have represented God's presence because to have Jesus before them was to have God before them. That is the ginormity of the claim. And we, we may hear that and sing of that truth so often that we lose the gravity of it. But yet think about what that means. If Jesus claims to be God, he either is or he isn't. There is no in-between. He either is or he isn't. He is claiming something that if we grasp the height of that claim, it ought to intimidate us ever so slightly because he is claiming not that he is a good teacher, not as every other religion in the world may claim that he will tell us how to get to the light. He is claiming that he is the light himself, that he is God himself. And to get close to God, to get close to the light is not to follow all of these little rules and rituals and commands, but it is to have him and be possessed by him. As we sang at the start of our service, what is our only height, hope in life and death? That we belong to Christ. Why? Because belonging to him means the light has possessed us. That we have life and we have hope and we have meaning, and we have purpose. That is what Jesus claimed to be the light of the world is, that we might have life in him. Because outside of him, there is only darkness and death. And we all know that to be true, because if Jesus is not the light of the world, then most likely the atheists are right, and we are nothing more than cosmic dust drifting through space, orbiting a star that will one day burn up and will be swallowed into the back black hole that it leaves in its place. And our lives were meaningless and nothing. But if he is the light of the world, we live our lives not as meaningless specks of dust, but we live our lives as people who may know personally and intimately the one true God, Jesus Christ. We can know him not as an abstract concept, not as somebody high in the clouds, far and removed from us, but we can know him as a person in the flesh who has lived and walked on the same earth that we have lived and walked on. We can know him as what he speaks to us through his word. We can know him as he reveals himself to us. And the question is, do, do we believe this or not? Are we going to step into his light or try and flee from it and stay in the darkness? As one Scottish minister, Rabbi John Duncan, once said, Christ either deceived mankind by conscious fraud or he was himself deluded and self-deceived or he was divine. There is no getting out of this trilemma. It is exorable. Jesus either is who he says he is or he isn't. And if he is, we have hope and we have life and we have light as he tells us in this passage. Jesus is the light of the world that gives us hope because it gives us meaning and it gives us purpose and it gives us truth in a world that lacks all of those things. This is what it means 
for him to be light of the world. It is a huge claim. It is a world-changing claim. This is why Jesus Christ is the most compelling figure in all of history, because he claims not to be a teacher of the, of the way or to show us how to get to God. He claims to be God in the flesh, the light of the world. The other thing that we though see about this light is that this light will show us something. I have this horrible problem. Um, I hate going into department stores and I hate especially going into changing rooms because I have in my head what I think I look like. And then I go into a changing room. I don't know what it is about changing rooms, but they have all the lights surrounding the big mirror. And as you look into the big mirror, suddenly you're confronted with a person who you don't quite recognize anymore, who's a few years older, a few pounds heavier, who maybe has a few more stains than you realized when you were leaving the house. Whenever we get close to light, there's something a little bit intimidating about it, isn't there? We can't look directly at the sun because we're blinded. We sometimes quite like to have the lights dimmed in our house because we don't quite want to have to look at ourselves and the reflections too much if we can avoid it. Because light shows us what we are really like and who we truly are. And whenever we look at Jesus, we are confronted with a light that ought to challenge us and ought to leave us a little bit uncomfortable as we are faced with who we truly are. Can I ask you, you've perhaps sat in pews or in Mrs. Case chairs your whole life hearing about Jesus. And can I ask you, have you ever felt challenged by him? Have you ever felt pushed by him? Because if we have a Jesus who we are not pushed by, what we worship each Sunday is not the Lord who claims to be the light of the world and God, but rather we are worshiping our own notions and preferences. As one writer, Tim Keller, once said that conversion begins whenever we begin to realize God is not who we would like him to be. Whenever we realize we worship a God who is not like us, as we read in Isaiah, his ways are not our ways, his thoughts are not our thoughts, we realize that we ought to be challenged in some way. And whenever Jesus claims to be light, he claims to be a light that exposes us in a way that can be uncomfortable. As we read in John 3.20, everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. How many of us hold a bit of ourselves back from Jesus, from each other in church, for fear that we do not want to be brought into the light? How many of us are afraid to have Jesus leak beyond our Sunday mornings and maybe our Tuesday and Wednesday evenings and into how we conduct our business each day, to how we talk to our, our wife or our husband or our kids, to how we treat those who we see serving us, to how we think, how we speak, and how we act. If Jesus is the light of the world, it gives us great hope. But suddenly when we realize who he is, God and Lord of the universe, 
It means that there is not an aspect of our lives that we can hide from him in the shadows. It must all be brought into his light and exposed by it. We may say things we do not like. We may see things we didn't realize were there. But in his light, there is life because we see things as they truly are. We see that he is light that challenges us. And finally, we see that he, there is a light that leads. If you look down with me, whenever Jesus makes his claim, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus' claim to be the light of the world is an invitation. It's an invitation to follow him, to step into the light, to come out of the darkness and to bask in his presence. And my question for you this morning is quite simply this. Have you done that? And maybe you're skeptical about Jesus this morning. Maybe you have doubts or concerns. Maybe you have been dragged here against your will as a mere prerequisite to getting your Sunday lunch. Can I encourage you, get to know this Jesus. William started off this series with a sermon called Come and See. If you do nothing else with Jesus, simply come and see. See if his claim is true. See if his claim is worthy. See why he is the person who is the pebble in the shoe of so many of us. We cannot get away from him and we cannot get him out of our minds. Because if he really is who he claims to be, it changes everything. Come and see, come and follow Bask and know him. Step into the light. Because in the light there is life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news that Jesus is the light of the world. Help us to bask in his presence, to revel in his joy. Lord, help the light of his life to come into every corner of ours, that we may have that life everlasting. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.